I came proclaiming God's wisdom that is hidden from the rulers of this world. Paul doesn't lead with a sermon anything like the letters that he then wrote. Paul leads, to hear him tell it at least, with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. The way I imagine that is that Paul led his community in some way that sparked that Pentecost fire, that made them look at each other and fall in love with each other, that made them feel God's presence among them, short-circuiting all the logical steps required to persuade them that that was a good idea, pulling on their God-given heartstrings to unite them, bind them together, revive the Spirit in them. But then Paul goes on to say, yet among the mature, we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. And that is what I would like to do today among the mature. To speak about that hidden wisdom, things at the limit of our understanding The mind of Christ, only understood by those who have already been kindled spiritually, only understood by those who already love and want to love. But it is wisdom. It is logic. It is knowledge and understanding nonetheless. And in conflict with the education, the ways of knowing, and the understanding of the powerful in the world. So that's the idea. I'm going to try to lay bare one small corner of God's logic for we who are in love with love. And in so doing, I'm going to trust that 2,000 years of Christian witness have not been completely in vain. That some of the wise today, some of the learned, are indeed spiritual also, or at least trying to be. So I'm going to be talking about some words and phrases that you may have heard, words and phrases that some of you may understand better than I do. Things like game theory and the myth of redemptive violence and other such fancy phrases trying to show that they are not actually all that strange or complicated, that they are things that you can wrap your heads around in 10 minutes and that they can be stepping stones Small grains of truth leading us down the path to Christ, the great truth. This morning, as I was driving to church, I was I heard the beginning of an interview on NPR of Ezra Klein, this guy who is one of the founders of Vox Media. Who was doing all of these political interviews and editing political stories and deciding who to feature and what to say as he start was on this rising media empire and said that he felt like he could see good people caught in this vice, he said, caught in a vice that made them act not as good as he knew they were. He said politician after politician, he would see that they were a good person trying to do good things, but they got stuck by the system, by the realities of politics, and then feeling like he was caught in that vice himself, that he himself could not behave the way he wished to. I didn't get to hear most of the interview, 
But I'm pretty sure I know where he was going with that, or at least that one idea, the idea of the vice, the feeling of being pressured to do what's good for your party, good for your career, good for your family, instead of doing what you know is good for everyone. In game theory, they call this the prisoner's dilemma or the tragedy of the commons. Imagine a traditional British village, right, with a common green in the middle that they call the commons, and everybody brings their cows to graze on the commons. Well, the tragedy of the commons is that everybody has an interest in bringing as many of their cows to the commons as they can. But, of course, if everybody does that, the commons turns into a mud pit and nobody can can eat anything. This idea that my interests as an individual are going to be in conflict with our interests as a group. You can also think about it as a fisherman on a lake, right? If you've got a lake with... Ten fishermen and a hundred fish in it. Well, if everybody takes ten fish, there'll be no more fish next year. You've wiped out the fish. They're gone. So a reasonable thing to do would be to say, all right, everybody can take five fish and then we're going to leave 50 fish so that it replenishes next season to back to 100, right? That's a reasonable way to operate. And as long as everybody does that, why, over time, everybody gets infinite fish. We all benefit. Seems perfect. But then you get some young buck who thinks he's smarter than these old geezers who have set up this traditional system and says, ah, man, why not just go in there and get get a couple more? Get six. I'm going to get six this time instead of five. What happens when somebody gets six? Everybody gets six. And seven... And eight, because suddenly you know that the fish are going to get wiped out. Because now everybody's getting six. The fish population's going to dwindle and die. So since you know that the fish are going to be wiped out, the only sane thing to do is to get as many as you can while the getting's good. This is not an abstract problem. This is exactly what's happening in fisheries all over the world right now. And this problem of the, the tragedy of the commons is not abstract either. It came out of the realities of living in a b- traditional British town. All game theory did was put some numbers to it. Here are some of the numbers, but don't pay attention to them. I put them up there because they're confusing and you're supposed to ignore them. Basically, if you've got two people who are dealing with each other, People can choose to either deal rightly, cooperate, do the fair thing, play along, or they can choose to deal unjustly with the other person, to backstab the other person, be mean. Essentially, the way this works out in the case of the fisherman is that they can choose to follow the rules and get their five fish, or they can choose to push it and try to get more. As an individual, you will get paid off a whole lot if the other person does the right thing and you do the wrong thing. You get a lot of money. You get a lot of fish. You get a lot of grass for your cows, right? 
if you backstab them and they don't backstab you. That is the bottom left there and the top right, where one person has refused, did the refuse and the other did the confess. Don't worry about those words. But basically, one person backstabbed and the other one played along. If both people do the right thing, then everybody gets a moderately high payoff. And if both people do the wrong thing, then everybody gets much less. Now, what that means is, unfortunately, as an individual, the smart answer is always to do the wrong thing. Because if you do the right thing and they do the wrong thing, you get nothing. If you do the wrong thing and they do the wrong thing, at least you get some. If you stick by the rules and you only get your take your five fish and everybody else goes in there and plunders, you'll be much worse off than if you were in on the plundering, too. On the other hand, if the other person does the right thing, your payoff is better if you do the wrong thing once again. If they do the right thing and you do the wrong thing, you reap huge rewards. So in every case for you as an individual... It pays off to be bad, to backstab. This, my friends, is the wisdom of the world. Now, we set up laws. We set up regulations. We say, okay, look, this fishing only five fish thing, it's non-optional. You've got to do it. And if you don't do it, we'll hunt you down and beat you up. That's the law. That's the function of the law, and it it allows us to hobble by. But the problem is, the law is never going to cover every circumstance. The law can't cover kids sharing crayons. And in every interaction, the same rules apply. If you're mean and the other person is mean, at least you get something. If You're mean and the other person is nice. You get a bunch. And it's awfully hard to find circumstances where you're better off, right away at least, by being nice. Or at least that's the case if you're only playing the game one time. Game theory has explained, however, that People never just play the game one time. People are playing this game again and again and again. They build up reputations. Oh, and by the way, if you've got a village full of people over here who are always backstabbing each other, because that's always the smart thing to do, right? What's wise in the world's eyes. And you compare it to a village over there where people always cooperate with each other. Who knows how they got there? They're crazy. They're they're drunk. Who knows? It may only be nine in the morning, but these guys are nuts. Which village thrives? Which village dies? In many ways, the scientists of the 20th and 21st century who are studying these human interactions of whether it pays off to be a good guy or whether it pays off to be mean, have come round to Psalm 112. 
Happy are those who listen to God's rules. They will be healthy, wealthy, and steadfast. And as for the wicked, they will wither. See, because it turns out that although it is true mathematically that if you and your and another person are playing this kind of a game where you've got the option of treat each other right or backstabbing, it is true mathematically that as an individual, you should always backstab every time. That that will make you and your partner wither. And that that logic of the individual is logic that leads to death. And decay to the broken, to broken relationships, broken economics, to lakes that are empty of fish, to fields that are churned up in mud. But if we cooperate, we will flourish, our light will shine. And we will rise on eagles' wings. This is the rub. This is the human condition. We know that we should cooperate, that over the long haul, if we cooperate, everyone will flourish, but we always fall to that temptation to backstab because it pays off for the individual. And we always look at ourselves as number one. And what's worse is we tell ourselves stories to make that backstabbing okay. And that's where we get on to part two. So that's, that's game theory. Game, what game theory has to say about human interaction, politics and economics, really, is that, yes, it is true that it pays off to be a robber for the individual, but that the group over time suffers terribly. Unfortunately, not only are we tempted by our, the, 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 the fantastic returns we can reap if we fish more than our fair share of fish, but also the evil spreads In our scenario of the fishermen, all it takes is one person getting that sixth fish and suddenly the wheels have come off the bus because everybody sees what's going on and there's a gold rush to go grab as many fish as you can before they're wiped out. The evil is contagious. When somebody decides to backstab you, what are you going to do the next time you're dealing with them? You're going to continue to do the right thing? You're going to continue to be upright or are you going to backstab them right back? leaving everybody impoverished. That story that says, I am right when I backstab because it happened to me first is the story that we always tell to justify it. Nobody ever thinks that they're the first one to do violence. It's always in retaliation and response to some violence that was done to them. And trust me, history is always going to be long enough. You'll find some place, some time, when you were the victim first. We call this the myth of redemptive violence. That 
I got hurt. And so I need to hurt back. And if I hurt back enough and in the right way, I'll make it right. It's our favorite myth of all time. We tell this story a thousand times over in a thousand movies and a thousand books. The hero gets hurt and then needs to hurt back in the right way in order to fix things. That the violence can redeem the situation, can set things right, can balance the scales. This phrase is taken up most strongly by an author by the, called René Girard. He's one of these 1960s French moral philosophers that speaks in sweeping generalizations and really hard-to-follow abstract images. Says stuff like, Violence is the divine force that everyone tries to use for his own purposes and that ends by using everyone for its own. He wrote a book in 1999 called, toward the end of his career, called I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. It's a book all about this myth of redemptive violence, a myth that he says isn't just the most popular movie theme in American culture, but is, in fact, the foundation of most of the stories that people have told each other throughout history. It's how you feel like a good guy when you're going out to do the selfish thing. When you have set your heart on a course of being the backstabber, Being the one who will offer violence, you must first justify that. You have to say it was done to me worse first. And what I'm doing is just retaliation, is just balancing the scales. So we tell these stories to each other again and again and again. You get hit, you hit back. And as long as as everyone believes your story, believes your script, you walk away feeling justified, feeling like you are the good guy and that your violence was the right thing to do. For René Girard, the sacrifice of Christ is many things. But what he pulls out in a way that nobody really saw quite so clearly before was this idea of Jesus swallowing up the grave. Jesus' victory over Satan. Jesus' victory over violence itself. Because when Jesus died... Uh, a scapegoat that everybody wanted, that all the, the whole community got together to kill. Nobody was allowed to hold true to the claim that he deserved it. The Christian story, the whole essence of the gospel is that Jesus was innocent, did not deserve the violence that was done to him. That by accepting death, At the hands of the Romans and the Jewish authorities, Jesus pulled off the mask of their justifications and showed them, showed their, their violent system for the ugliness that it is. 
stripped away all the lies, the pretension, the pride of the powerful who let blood in order to keep their power and let us see the monster for what it really is. It's a theme that's already present in in Old Testament Hebrew texts. The innocent who suffers. Abel. Joseph and his coat of many colors. Job, the suffering servant of Israel, right? But it is a theme that is shown most perfectly in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Isaiah 58 already shows how a whole community can decide to tell each other stories about how good they are rather than actually do anything good. Isaiah 58 describes a people who are putting on religious shows and telling each other as, as cover for this myth that they hold tr- cling, that they cling to that tells us we can do whatever's necessary to protect ourselves. We can backstab. We can be the meanie. We can overexploit the lake. We can put too many cows on the grass because we deserve it. Because we are owed. God wants a whole different way of life, a different way of relating, a different way of thinking, a new logic. All of our nice, pleasant religious observances can become cover for our basic unwillingness to do what is right by those around us. We draw near to things that are clean, things that are holy, things that make us feel strong and justified. And for all of the benefit that religious observance can and does bring us, it can also be a false wallpapering over of horrible cracks in our own moral life. We know this. What's horrifying is to read René Girard and see just how big it is. See just how much people do this, just how much people let themselves get away with because they have persuaded themselves that they're in the right. How much violence and destruction we wreak because we're convinced we're the good guys. Most terrible thing is to read on the Internet people condemning Islam and praising Christianity because and talking about going to war on Islam, in the name of Christ, because Christianity is a peaceful religion that has pacifists like us. We become some people, we as, I mean, this kind of community, of the community of peacemakers, Christian pacifists have become 
in some people's arguments, an excuse for doing violence. Because Christianity is a peaceful religion, so therefore we need to go wipe out this other religion that's not. Do you see how this logic works? Anything is grabbed and co-opted in order to justify what we want to do already, which is the short-term selfish thing. Isaiah 58 describes to us a God that needs the people on board. That requires justice and real relationship in the people of Israel. It doesn't feel very good when we think about it in these transactional terms, right? We don't like thinking, if you do this, then God will do that. If, you're, if you people behave rightly among each other, then God will bring good things on the community. But what if the word from the prophet had been something like, doesn't matter what you do, God's healing presence will or won't come, you got nothing to do with it. Would we really prefer that? Is that actually better? No, instead, Isaiah confronts us with our own moral agency. That we have a choice to make in our everyday lives. Every time we share crayons, every time we go to the grocery store, we have choice to make to either cooperate or backstab. And God expects, demands, partners who will diligently work for the good of creation. Restorative people. It's a long way to get there via game theory and the myth of restorative violence. I, I hope that it has provided for you some food for thought and some stepping stones towards God's truth. And it's exciting to see Harvard, well, what was, what was his title? Professor of Mathematical Biology at Oxford University and Biology and Mathematics at Harvard University. This new mathematical biology field that is all talking about Good Samaritans, the golden rule, altruism, evolution, and why we need each other to succeed. It is exciting to see some of the educated and wise coming round on this 2,000 years after Paul dismissed them saying, come on, they're never going to get there. But it is the slow path, my friends. I tried my best to pare it down and talk us through it, but it still took me 20 minutes. And it has taken us thousands of years to see how hard logic can lead to loving conclusions rather than leading just to that very first revelation, hey, always be selfish. Which is why Paul came preaching simplicity itself. Not wise, lofty words, but Christ and him crucified. If game theory tells us that 
evil is contagious. Once one person breaks the deal, other people start breaking the deal and pillaging and plundering too. We can also see and know how contagious good can be. It all has to do with the stories we tell each other. With the script that we have learned from our parents, from our peers growing up. It's awfully hard to believe in a loving, graceful God when your co-workers are looking at every opportunity to stab you in the back. And yet, we can do it. We can and have flourished in the midst of darkness because we tell ourselves a story again and again that we ingrain so deeply in ourselves that all the other negative life lessons we might learn can be washed away, their relative importance reduced by this simple story. There once was a man named Jesus a powerful healer, speaker, and leader of his people, the Son of God, who taught them to love one another and do justice. When the government authorities came after him because he was a threat, rather than run away or fight back, Jesus allowed them to kill him, showing everyone just how ugly, corrupt, and cruel the system is. Far from the end being the end of Jesus, that death caused him to be lifted up. And now the whole world has seen the truth about violence. Simplicity itself. Short-circuiting all of the work that it has taken to mathematically show how cooperation pays off. But relying instead on the spirit of love on people who look into each other's eyes and fall in love with each other, who fall in love with the love that binds them. It's interesting, and for me, extremely illuminating to look at these modern scientific logical formulations for altruism. But fundamentally, they do not become the proof the center point. I only like them because they confirm what has already been sparked in my heart, what I already know by the Spirit, not by logic. There is wisdom, God's wisdom, and we can trace it and follow it and understand it, and I believe we are miles down that road, farther than where society was in Paul's day. But that logic is not cannot be left to run the ship. The ship must still always be guided by Christ's Spirit. Pay attention to the stories you hear. Pay attention to the the implicit perspective you read in a news story that says, ah, this violent act that was done was justified. This act of backstabbing or not fulfilling obligations had to happen, was necessary, a just return 
for evil that was done beforehand. Pay attention to the myth of redemptive violence as it comes into your life and tries to tell you it's okay to be the exploiter, the oppressor, the destroyer. Pay attention to all those myths, those lies the world tries to tell us and see how in the light of the love that shines between us, they melt away. They just don't make sense. They don't hold water. Rather than picking and choosing our facts to fit our hurtful, hateful proclivities, we can instead let our light shine before others. Let our goodness be even more contagious than evil can be. that they may see your good deeds and believe.